Father, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our guide. And above everything, we pray that Jesus Christ would be our chief concern. Even so, we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Leviticus 5, starting at verse 1. If anyone sins because they do not speak up when they hear a public charge to testify regarding something they have seen or learned about, they will be held responsible. If anyone becomes aware that they are guilty, if they, unwitt- if they unwittingly touch anything ceremonially unclean, whether the carcass of an unclean animal, wild or domestic, or of any unclean creature that moves along the ground, and they are unaware that they have become unclean, but they come to realize their guilt, or if they touch human uncleanliness, anything that would make them unclean, even though they are unaware of it, but then they learn of it and realize their guilt, or if anyone thoughtlessly takes an oath to do anything, whether good or evil, in any manner one might carelessly swear about, even though they are unaware of it, but then they learn of it and realize their guilt. When anyone becomes aware that they are guilty in any of these matters, they must confess in what they have sinned. As a penalty for the sin they have committed, they must bring to the Lord a female goat or female lamb or goat from the flock as a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for them for for their sin. Anyone who cannot afford a lamb is to bring two doves or two young pigeons to the Lord as a penalty for their sin, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. If they are to bring them to the priest, they are to bring them to the priest who shall first offer the one for the sin offering. He is to wring its head from its neck, not dividing it completely, and is to splash some of the blood of the sin offering against the side of the altar. The rest of the blood must be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. The priest shall then offer the other as a burnt offering in the prescribed way and make atonement for them for the sin they have committed, and they will be forgiven." If, however, they cannot afford two doves or two young pigeons, they are to bring as an offering for their sin a tenth of an ephah of finest flour for the sin offering. They must not put olive oil or incense on it because it is a sin offering. They are to bring it to the priest who shall take a handful of it as a memorial portion and burn it on the altar on top of the food offerings presented to the Lord. It is a sin offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for them for any of these sins they have committed, and they will be forgiven. The rest of the offering will belong to the priest, as in the case of the grain offering. Okay, so last week, Mike did a great job of introducing us to the sin offering, or in some cases, it's known as the purification offering. And the idea behind the sin offering is very simple. It's the idea that you, I, someone has sinned, and because of their sin, they need to be cleansed from it. They need to be purified. And what I really appreciate about what Mike did last week was he made it explicitly clear about the weight or the costliness of our sin. That part of what's happening with the sacrifice of an animal is that we have to recognize that this thing has to die in order for me to be cleansed. And it impresses upon me in that moment in which I'm actually the one cutting its throat that I sinned. I have done this and it costs this much. 
right? We begin to realize the scope and the, 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 the depth of the impact of our sin on us and on the world around us. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to camp out on this idea about the sin offering just a little bit more. But what I want to do is I want to dive into how Jewish people thought about sin before we get into chapter 5 just a little bit more. So when Jewish people thought about sin, there were three dimensions of sin that they considered. The first dimension of sin was the idea that there are sins that are committed that are deliberate and intentional when they are done. Right? So the very first case of this would be Adam and Eve. God says to Adam and Eve at the very beginning of Genesis chapter 2, you can have anything that you want in this garden, but just don't eat the fruit of that tree. There was a very specific command given to Adam and Eve about what they should not do. And despite the fact that they were tricked or however you enticed, whatever it might be, they deliberately and intentionally broke that command of God. And when they broke the command, guilt and shame overcame them, right? Their conscience is pricked, and they understand that they have sinned. They have done wrong in the eyes of the Lord. And so this is, this is the first dimension. The first dimension is this deliberate, intentional sin. And oftentimes, when we commit this kind of sin, it pricks our consciences. We begin to feel guilt and shame. And it's our conscience consistently telling us, like, you've sinned. You've done something you know you should not do, and yet you did it anyway. Now, what's fascinating for us to consider for just a moment is in the Jewish thinking, for this kind of sin, there was no sacrifice. There was no sacrifice for the intentional and deliberate sins. They, they typically had two ways of dealing with it, right? The first was to throw you outside of the tribe or kill you, right? Adam and Eve deliberately sin. The consequence is death and banishment from the garden. You can read through Deuteronomy, and there's all these sins like the, around sexual immorality, around murder, around theft, all of these types of things. And the end result is always a little bit barbaric to us, and it's like, take them outside the camp and stone them. Because that's the only way that you could keep the people pure enough to be a nation of priests. Now, in some ways that didn't always happen, and, and so there's the, the thought began to, to come in that, okay, we can't offer a sacrifice. There's no goat, there's no lamb, there's no bull that is going to adequately deal with this kind of sin. And so the only kind of sacrifice that's really acceptable when a deliberate and intentional sin is, uh, occurs is shuva which is this idea, in Hebrew it means to return. It's the idea of repentance. Repentance is the only sacrifice that adequately deals with this kind of sin. And so you sin, you feel the guilt and the remorse that you've done it, and then you confess what you did. Not apology. Confess. We'll talk about this in a little bit, that there's a difference here. You confess what you did, and then you make any reparations that are necessary because of your sin. So if in your sin you cause harm to another person to the degree that they cannot work, then you not only pay for their medical attention that they need, but you also pay for their lost wages. You feel guilt, you feel remorse, then you make reparations, and then you make a resolution and take action so that it never happens again. You do the work that's necessary so that you are now the type of person who's like, I will not do that sin anymore, and it's evidence in the community. The people around you can say, yes, they are changed. They are no longer the same. 
And then maybe at that point, you'll get forgiveness. Like, forgiveness wasn't really the point. The point was, are you no longer going to sin in this way? If faced with a situation in the future, are you going to choose to do the right thing? That was the point. Are you going to make reparations for the wrong that you've done? That was the point. Now, when most of us think of sin, I think we actually think of, we may not think of all those steps of shuva, of repentance, but we think of the deliberate and the intentional sins. Right? That's what we have in mind, that when I sin, I choose to break God's commands. I'm willing something to happen. This is my intention. My intention is to do that which I know is wrong. But that's not this kind of sin, or that's just the first dimension of sin. Jews had a second dimension of sin, and here they thought that regardless of whether you felt guilt or shame, or regardless of whether or not you knew that you had sinned, When you break God's commands, you break God's commands, intentional or not, right? So imagine you're driving down the road. You're driving down the road, and you notice your speedometer is acting a little bit funky. It's kind of jumping all over the place, and then it just falls flat. So you just continue on, okay? I take my time, going around nicely, and you, in your mind, are imagining you're driving somewhere around 30 miles an hour. Right? And then all of a sudden you look in the rearview mirror and the flashers are going off. Cop pulls you over. They walk up to the window and say, Yes, officer, what, what's the problem here? And they say, Do you know you're speeding? No, officer, I, I really didn't. My speedometer was jumping all around. It fell flat. I tried to go slow. Uh, I, I, I thought I was going about 30 miles an hour. No, you were going 50 in the 35. The cop may sympathize with you, but more than likely you're still getting a ticket. Because you broke the law. It didn't matter that you didn't know that you broke the law. It's your responsibility to know the law and to conduct yourself under the law. So your intention didn't matter. Your awareness of whether or not you were doing it didn't matter. If it was unwittingly, it didn't matter. So so look with me at Leviticus starting at chapter 4. Look at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, When anyone sins unintentionally, jump down to verse 13. If the whole Israelite community sins unintentionally, go to verse 22. When a leader sins unintentionally, jump down to verse 27. If any member of the community sins unintentionally, Go over to chapter 5, verse 2. If anyone becomes aware that they are guilty, if they unwittingly. Look at verse 3. Uh, or if they touch a human uncleanliness, even though they are unaware of it. Verse 4. Or if anyone thoughtlessly takes an oath to do anything, whether good or evil, even though they are unaware of it. Why point all this out? Well, it's quite obvious that the sins here in chapters 4 and 5 are talking about these sins that are done unintentionally, that we uh, are unaware. And the examples that are connected with them are kind of small examples, right? 
Did you fail to testify when you should have? Did you inadvertently touch an unclean animal? Did you inadvertently or unwittingly touch human uncleanliness? Did you promise to do something, even though it was thoughtless, even though it was like a moment of I was tired, I wasn't really paying attention to what they said, so I promised that I would do this thing. Did you do that? I mean, we're talking about these relatively small things And we're not talking about these big, deliberate, intentional sins. We're not talking about like going out and stealing a Tesla and then running over mailboxes with it, right? We're talking about something as small as, did you thoughtlessly tell someone you were going to do something and then not do it? We're talking about failing to be trusted as a person who who, who understands what is required of them. A person who for just a moment is negligent, who isn't paying attention. There are some commentators who say that, that Leviticus 5 talks about these kinds of unintentional sins and then says, hey, there's a sacrifice that's required of it. And they say that the sacrifice isn't even really required to the purity of the sins. The sacrifice is to account for the time that this sin was allowed to fester within the community. Because there's a gap between when you did the thing that you did and then the moment in which you become aware of it. And in that gap, the sin exists within the community. The sin festers. The sin boils over. The sin begins to, to, to run rapid and wreak havoc in the community because resentment happens between spouses when you say that you say you're going to do something and then you don't do it, right? Anger begins to spring up between people groups. And every additional moment that that sin is left undealt with within the community, it grows and it becomes something bigger than what it is. And so the, the, the commentators say that, that the sacrifice is actually dealing with that because the, the offense is rather small, but this thing that happens because of the sin, this is something big and this is something that has to be dealt with. And so what Leviticus is reminding us is that regardless of whether or not you know of your sin, regardless of whether or not you were trying to be obedient, but happened in that moment to be weak or to do something that just like, oh, I didn't think it was going to end up like that, like you still broke the law and that thing still needs to be dealt with. And for that, a sacrifice of a lamb or a goat or a couple of birds or some grain, for that kind of sin... We can work with it. I want to put this slide up there. One Jewish commentator named Abrabanel, he said that the bringing of a sacrifice required considerable effort and expense and was a vivid reminder to the individual to be more careful in the future. So the idea is, yes, you did something wrong. And yes, there is a cost to it. But that sin can still be dealt with. That sin can be covered over with a sacrifice. And in bringing that sacrifice forward, it's going to make the one who sinned a little more careful. It's going to make them aware of that thing that they didn't, didn't, weren't aware of before, they weren't paying attention to. Which gets us to the third dimension of sin. So the first dimension is that we have sins that are deliberate and intentional, and the second is we have these sins that are uh, unintentional and deliberate. The third one goes a little bit deeper and says that uh, whether or not the sin is deliberate or unintentional, the reality or or the result, well, let's go with the reality. The reality is the same. There is a stain on your soul. 
So there is uh, ancient rabbi Nachmanides, if you want to put that next slide up there. He said that all sins leave a stain on the soul and constitute a blemish on it. And the soul is only fit to meet its maker when it has been cleansed from all sin. Intentional, unintentional, doesn't matter. All of it leaves a stain on the soul. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who's a contemporary, he says this. Go to the next slide. He says, sin may not leave a stain on the soul. It may testify to a stain on the soul. Now, we hear that last one, and that one actually probably goes right along with our theology because we believe that, that sin is something that is inside of us, that it's an inherent part of who we are, that it's been passed on from generation to generation going all the way back to Adam, that all of us have it. We are a people that believe that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are a people who believe in total depravity. And I want to be really clear when I say that we are a people who believe in total depravity, what I mean there. That is not to say that we believe that you are a complete and total heinous scumbag who is irredeemable. That is not what we mean when we say total depravity. What we mean is, is that every aspect of your person has been affected by sin. That there is no part of you that has not been impacted by that. And so your identity your work in the world, your parenting, your sexuality, your ability to be in good relationship with others, uh, what you do with your money, what you do with your time, every aspect of your person has been affected by sin in some way. We believe that even our good deeds have elements of our sin in there. This is why the Bible says no one is righteous, no, not one, or even your righteous acts are like filthy rags before me. It's not saying that God detests our filthy, our, our, our righteous acts, but rather they're tainted by sin. Even our most pure intentions are affected by sin in some way. Now, I think we believe this theoretically. I think we, we, we get this, and the theology that I'm espousing right now is not something that we would argue with. But I'm not sure that we believe it functionally. Particularly when it imply, uh, applies to our intentions. So we would say total depravity says that even your best intentions are affected by sin. Theoretically, yes. Get that. But how it plays out in life, I'm not 100% sure we buy that. So imagine you have a coworker, uh, not picking on anybody, just picking you know, the name John Smith. You have a coworker named John, right? And John is in the meeting, with some folks, and during the meeting, he makes a racist comment, or at least a comment that's deemed as racist by the people of color who are sitting at the table. And so they go to John, and they say, hey, this, this, this comment, when you said this, this is the way that it affected me. And John's like, well, no, 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 that's not what I intended. That's not what I was, I was, I was trying to say at all. And they're like, yeah, but it was still a hurtful comment to me. And John refuses to take any responsibility for it. And so that begins to fester in the space, right? It begins to affect relationships, and people begin to take sides, and, and all of a sudden, now we can see how this sin is working out, right? And some of the people begin to defend John and say, John doesn't have a racist bone in his body. I don't know. I like, John is a good guy. John would never say that. And notice how we've subtly shifted the conversation away from the one who felt hurt, the one who is negatively impacted. And now we're talking about the essence of who John is. Is John good or not? 
We've completely disregarded the impact. We've completely disregarded what's happening within the community. And we're just trying to talk about, like, was John good? Did John have pure intentions as if that would absolve John from what happened? What we fail to acknowledge is that it could be absolutely true that John believes that all people are, in fact, created equal. And it could actually be that John believes that people should not be judged by the color of their skin. It could, in fact, be absolutely true that John is a really good guy. And it could absolutely be true that John unintentionally made a racist comment. Those are not exclusive ideas. Because everything about us has been affected by sin. Right? And, and we could talk about many different things. We talk about your parenting. You, you, you parent and believe that you need to be patient and loving with your children, and this is something that you functionally believe, and this is something that you're intending to do. But today, the kids are absolutely crazy, and I lost it. It could be that you see someone who is hurting and who is in pain because life has their, its boot on their neck, and you want to offer them comfort. But as you offer them comfort, you unintentionally hurt them deeper. You make it so it's not safe for them to grieve. You make it so they feel like they aren't a real Christian. You make, it, make them feel like they have failed in some way or they brought this upon themselves. And now that lament that they're experiencing is even greater. And that's not what your intent was. It could be that you're trying to help someone who's needy and is, in, is, is, is financially behind in the moment, but in the offering your help or trying to help, you unintentionally offend them because you make it feel like they can't take care of themselves. Right? And, and, and listen, we all do this on some level. And I think that I can say that pretty safely because I'm, I'm guessing if you're like me, there has been a point in your life at which you have said, I never meant to upset you. And yet I did. It wasn't my intent to hurt you in that way. And yet I did. I, I, I was unaware that my words would have that impact on you. And the danger is, is in those moments that we begin to make an appeal to our intent as if our intent is what will fix the situation. Or that our intent would absolve us from any sin. But I just want to be really clear about this and this is about as heady as I'm going to get this morning. When we appeal to our intent, it is, more of a, it is more of an appeal to Immanuel Kant's philosophy than it is to the Bible. For Kant, morality of an act didn't rest on its impact or what you were doing, but rather on a person's intent. So if I'm trying to help you, and then if the process I offend you well, the offense isn't immoral and the offense wasn't wrong because the intent was good. That's Kant. But according to Leviticus and according to other places in the Bible, intent isn't the final word. If you sin unwittingly, unintentionally, if you're unaware of it, it still requires purification because it's done something. It's left a stain on your soul or it's illuminated the stain that already exists there. It's inserted something into the community that now will fester and grow and become larger than it is. Wrong was done. 
And we believe that when sin happens, it is once again re, uh, subjecting the cosmos to destruction and to death, to enmity, to strife, to toil, to pain, to suffering. All of these things exist because sin exists, intentional or not, deliberate or not, whether we're aware of it or not. Mistakes get made and mistakes simply cannot be overlooked. We don't get to just sweep them under the rug and walk away as if nothing happened. Even our unintentional sins leave a tear in the moral fabric of the universe. And that tear needs to be dealt with. A sacrifice is required. According to Leviticus 5.5, as soon as we're made aware of it, we need to confess it. Even if it was unintentional, like we need to confess that sin that we are made aware of so then that it can be dealt with it and it can be cleansed because once again the cosmos is being subjected to chaos against the order that God has brought to it. And I don't think that I'm overstating my case when I'm talking about chaos and moral tears and the moral fabric of the universe. I mean, you may be thinking there, like, Nate, I think you're a little bit dramatic here. But I don't think I'm dramatic at all because Jesus died on the cross for the sins we know of and the sins that we don't know of. God sent his son, God took on flesh, came into the world to deal with those sins. That's how big of a deal it is. And it's such a big deal that Jesus said, what on the cross? Father, forgive them for the intentional and deliberate sins that they are fully aware of. Nope. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. In that moment, Jesus is recognizing and telling us that sins of ignorance are just as bad and maybe even worse than the sins of deliberateness. Because those who cried crucified him, they believed that what they were doing was good. Their intent was to protect their faith. Their intent was to make sure that no one got led astray. Their intent was to preserve the glory of God, to maintain order and law in their society. The intent was pure. But their intent put the God of the universe on the cross. And so what is revealed on the cross is not only the depth of their sin, but the expanse of God's love for in ignorance in their ignorance, and even to their ignorance, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The most direct assault on God is described by a sin, as a sin of ignorance by God's own self. Yeah. So when I say that these sins may seem small, but yet they have this massive cosmic impact. I don't think I'm overstating my case one bit. And the fight, despite the fact that we all have these kinds of sins and we all commit them on a more regular basis than we would like to admit, we can find peace. Because Christ has died. The perfect sacrifice, once and for all, for all sin. The sins that we deliberately commit 
and the ones that are done unintentionally. Jesus died for them. And they are forgiven. Completely. Holy. The stain on our soul removed. And so we can be confident that we can still approach God. And we can be confident that the impact will be redeemed. So if this is all true, if it's true that our unintentional sin matter on a cosmic scale, and if it's true that we can be forgiven, how then should we respond to sin? the unintentional ones, intentional, whatever it might be. But let's just focus on the unintentional right now. I think there's two ways that we need to respond. Number one, we need to respond with humility and courage. And I pair those up purposefully. And I put, the reason I put them together is because it requires both humility to be someone who can be approached in order to be made aware of your sin, and it requires courage to admit that you, in fact, did that thing. It requires courage to not become defensive and say, well, that wasn't my intent, or I'm sorry you got offended, or I'm sorry you're so sensitive. Whatever it might be, the ways in which we try to minimize the thing that happened. It requires courage to do that, and it requires humility to say, I maybe don't even know myself, or at least the impact that I have in the room around me as well as others. So we need humility and courage. And then the second is we need to confess. James says that we are to confess our sins one to another and pray for each other so that we would be healed. And so confession becomes a part of the process by which we are purified from our sins. Now, I mean, not, not, not like Jesus has done all the work, but we come in and participate with the redeeming work that Christ has done. We, be, we begin to be healed of that sin such that it is no longer a stumbling block, no longer a thing that gets between us and God, no longer a fence that I continue to admit. Part of the way that that happens is by confession. Now, here's the thing about confession. I alluded to it earlier in the sermon. Confession is not an apology. Right? Confession is not saying I'm really sorry that this happened or anything like that. That's an apology. Confession is admitting that you've wronged. And you can apologize without confessing. You can, you can apologize without admitting that you ever did anything wrong. I'm really sorry that you took it that way. Not, an apo- not really an apology and definitely not a confession. I'm sorry that there's this thing between us. What's the thing between us? Right? None of that is an actual confession. Confession is the clear admittance, I have done this. This thing is wrong. This thing is something I have done against you. And we need to be able to do that. Because I think it's when we admit that, all the pain that's associated with it is is our sacrifice, if you will. If the sacrifice... In Leviticus, part of it was to help the person recognize just how big the sin was. Then our confession is also that sacrifice. When you have to confess that you did this thing that is wrong, like nobody likes that. It's painful. It's hard. And yet it might just be the thing that makes you go, and I never want to do that again. 
And so confession is part of the healing process. And we don't enter into confession full, I mean, we may feel some guilt and we may feel some shame, but we do not have to be dominated by those. Because John writes, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the gospel. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we can be confident. We can be confident that we can, with humility and courage, become or be made aware of our unintentional sins. And we can see the redemptive work of Christ as he both forgives us and cleanses us, but also begins to repair that tear in the universe. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you, you do not take sin lightly, but are so serious about dealing with it that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, into the world to once and for all offer the perfect sacrifice to mend that which has been torn apart, to redeem that which has been lost, to heal that which is sick, to reconcile that which was in enmity. We give you thanks. May we be a people who see the sacrifice of Christ evident in our life. May we see grace and mercy and forgiveness wash over us as we confess our sins one to another, that we might be healed. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.